Well, if you are uh, a mom and you're in this room, you can probably empathize and relate to my mom. Uh, when I was in, I don't remember, probably late elementary school or junior high school, I remember Mother's Day was coming up. It was maybe a week or two away, and I remember asking my mom, I said, hey, mom, what do you want for Mother's Day? And I thought she would say, you know, uh, another homemade ashtray from your ceramics class, even though I don't smoke, <laughs> another napkin holder that you made in woodshop, maybe a cartoon, I mean, a crayon drawing or something of some cartoons or whatever. But instead, she said this to me. She said, this is what I want for Mother's Day this year. And I said, all right, Mom, tell me what it is. And she said, I want you to go clean your room. I want you to put up all the dirty dishes and put them in the dishwasher or wash them. I want you to make sure you clean up after yourself. I want to make sure that you go to bed on time, that I don't need to always tell you what time to go to bed. And most of all, I had a little brother. She said to me, I want you and your little brother to stop fighting just for a week. Please, can you stop fighting? So in other words, what my mom was saying, she said, you know what? I don't want another T-shirt that says like greatest mom ever. I don't want something that you made in your art class. What I really want is just a little bit of peace and rest. Can the moms in the room say amen? And you almost have got to be that tired then, all right. So she said, I, can I get just a little bit of peace and rest? And if we're honest with ourselves, the desire of my mom is probably the desire of many of us, if not all of us in this room. As we go through life and we have challenges and difficulties and the busyness and stress of life, all of us would love to have peace and rest. And so today what we're going to look at from 2 Chronicles 15 is in the midst of busyness, the stress, the disturbances, the trials, illnesses, fighting kids, busy at work, troubles in life and ministry, where do we find peace and rest? Where do we find peace and rest? And we're going to look at 2 Chronicles chapter 15 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 15. And the king that we're going to look at today is King Asa, and the prophet is Azariah. In this series on kings and prophets, the king is King Asa, and the prophet is Azariah. Not a very well-known prophet. He's only mentioned here in this section. Now, here's the context of what's going on. Is King Asa is the king of the southern kingdom. We looked at last week how the kingdom was split. He's the king of the southern kingdom, and an army of a million men in chapter 14 from Ethiopia, from Cush, is coming to attack him. They've got 300 chariots. And so they're going to be overwhelmed by this mighty, mighty army. And what does he do? King Asa says, Lord, like we need your help. We're weak. Weak people who need your help go to you and you deliver them. So they say, we're coming to you. Would you deliver us? What happens is God delivers them from this million-man army and leaves them scattered and fleeing. And so here's what I find in life. Here's what I find in life, that when we go through failures in life and struggles, I was just talking to a brother in Christ about this. When we go through failures and struggles in life and work and relationships, those things tend to say, God, we need you. God, I need your help. I need you to heal me. I need your help. When we face circumstances that we don't know what to do, we go to the Lord. But here's what our flesh tends to do. That in the midst of great success and victory, our tendency is to depart from the Lord. If, if during struggles and trials and hard times, we depend on the Lord, 
Often what happens is during times of victory and success, we depart from the Lord. And so we saw that two weeks ago with Solomon. It was at the height of his reign when he had the most influence, the most power, the most wealth, that what happened? His heart departed from the Lord. He said, that may be true for everybody else. They need to obey the word of, the God, word of God, but I don't need to. And he began to depart from the Lord. And so this is what happens in 2 Chronicles 15. It begins with a warning from Azariah to Asa. You're at the pinnacle of success. A mighty, mighty army has just fled. Look at verse one. Now the spirit of God came on Azariah, the son of Oded, and he went out to meet Asa and said to him, listen to me, Asa and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you when you are with him. And if you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you abandon him, he will abandon you. For many days, Israel was without, a true, uh, without the true God and without a teaching priest and without the law. But in their distress, they turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, and they sought him and he let them find him. In those times, there's no peace for him who went out uh, or him who came in because many disturbances afflicted all the inhabitants of the lands. Nation was crushed by nation and city by city, for God had troubled them with every kind of distress. Verse seven, but you be strong and do not lose courage, for there is a reward for your work. So what happens at the height of King Asa's success? The warning that comes to King Asa from Azaria, and it's coming to all of us in here, is this, is that the pinnacle, height of your success, the business deal you just crushed, the bonus or raise you just got, the promotion you just got, the fact that finally your child is potty trained. Now that you're at the top of success, the pinnacle, be careful that you do not depart from the Lord because if you depart from him, his presence will also depart from you. So this isn't a positional thing. This isn't a covenant thing. This is a relational thing. So he says, be wary, be careful of that. And what does he do? He goes back in time to a period known as the judges. For about 300 years, there was a period in which the people of God departed from the Lord. There was uh, uh, lawlessness and all kinds of calamity that went on in Israel because they had departed from the Lord. So he says, remember, he says in verse three, for many days Israel was out the true God. So they had God, they had worship, they had religion, but during that time they did not worship and follow the true God. They followed kind of God in their own image. So he says, they had God, they had worship. Just because they had church and just because they had a band and just because they had somebody up front doesn't mean that they were following true God. Why does he say that? Because he says, and without a teaching priest. So they had priests that were there, but they weren't teaching, he says, at the end of verse three, and without the law. They weren't teaching the word of God. So he said, in this period of judges for 300 years, they had departed from the Lord. They still had worship. They still gathered. They still had perhaps a time of worship, but they were not following the true God. God had left them because they had departed from him. And because of that, verse five, in those days, there was no peace. That word peace is shalom, and it means wholeness or wellness, not just as we translate peace. And that word shalom means life as God intended it to be lived, marriage as God intended it to be had, parenting as God intended it, business as God intended it. He says that's what did not exist because they had departed from the Lord and his word. He says in verse six, nations crushed by nation, city by city, for God had troubled them with every kind of distress. So here's point number one. Departing from the Lord leads to a lack of peace and rest due to disturbances and distress. He says they were having disturbances and distress. Why? Because they had departed from the Lord. And so they had an absence of peace and rest. 
Notice in verse 6 too. Uh, in verse 6, he says, For God troubled them with every kind of distress. For God troubled them with every kind of distress. So when you go through difficulties and challenges in life, when you go through distress, it's so easy to point the finger and blame others, your boss, your spouse, your kids, your coworkers, and other people. Distress, distress, distress. It's so easy to point at the broken, sinful world we live in. Distress, distress, distress. Maybe even you look at yourself. But here in this, in this text right here, who caused the distress? Was it Satan? Y'all, it's right here in verse six. It was God. God did it. Why does he do that? Because God loves us. He loves us. And so when we depart from him, he knows often it's only distress and trouble that will cause us to fall to our knees and to seek him again. And so he allows trouble and distress. But they're going through disturbances and distress. They have no peace and rest because they have departed from the Lord. And so what does he start with? He starts with a history lesson. He said for 300 years, that's what Israel did. If you look at the book of Judges, it ends with, and every person did what was right in their own eyes. They departed from the Lord and his word. And because of that, that's the chaos that ensued. So if you're there today, that's the warning for you and I as well. Let me see if we have any people who are astute in history. I want you to just think about this. What year am I talking about? There was a global pandemic. The first known major outbreak was in Asia, and then the virus spread around the globe. Millions of lives were lost. A black man was killed and news spread around the world. Because of the killing, riots and protests broke out all across the country. Cities burned into the night. The media coverage of it was constant. It was a presidential election year, and the incumbent Republican president was not reelected. There were accusations of tampering in the election. The Los Angeles Lakers were in the NBA Finals with their two superstars. The U.S. military was dealing with a threat overseas. The nation was divided along racial and political lines, and sadly, so was the Christian church. Suspicions arose on who could be trusted. Could the media be trusted? Could politicians be trusted? Who is telling the truth? So my question to you all, if there's any history buffs in here, is what year was this? What year was this? 1968. In 1968, Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated. After his assassination, riots and protests broke out all around the nation. And one commentator said, you think what we saw in 2020 was bad. What happened in 1968 far eclipsed what happened in 2020. Cities burned into the night. Looting occurred. There was just riots all over the place. Lyndon B. Johnson... The Texan decided not to run for re-election. Who was elected instead? Richard Nixon. And with that, there were all these accusations of tampering in the election. The Los Angeles Lakers, Elgin Baylor and Jerry West, their two superstars, not LeBron James and Anthony Davis, were in the NBA Finals. H3N2, the flu known as the Hong Kong flu, which had its first major outbreak in Hong Kong, spread around the world, killing over a million people. If you remember, 1968 was also the year Vietnam was going on as well. And here's what happened in that era, is that many were saying, perhaps this is 
the time that Jesus is gonna come back, can it get any worse than this? Our nation is divided politically and racially. Violence is everywhere. Civil unrest is everywhere. And some are saying, maybe this is the end. Maybe this is when Christ is coming back as the birth pangs of his coming back. Maybe the rapture is gonna happen soon. But you know what happened? Believers instead, instead of either sticking their head in the sand or maybe uh, just getting hysterical over it, said we need to be about the Lord's work. And so in this time, in 1968, something happened in California, my home state, known as the Jesus Movement. And it spread all across the United States where people came to faith in Jesus Christ. Churches were started. They're still making an impact today. And here's what I believe about 2020. I believe this. If you look at Haggai, Haggai says this, that in our world, God will shake things up to get our attention. God causes distress to shake things up in the economy with pandemics and all these things to shake us up, to wake us up. Not so we'll put our head in the sand, not so that we'll just blog about it or tweet about it, so that we'll do something about it. Because our only hope, y'all, is not medicine, is not military, is not government. Our only hope is Jesus Christ. I, will hope, I was hoping that at least three, the three people would say amen to that. And that's what happened in 1968. A group of believers says, our hope is not in the military, not in the government, not in any institution. Our only hope and the hope of the world is Jesus Christ. So in 1968, the Jesus movement started, and that's where we get this term, holy roller, and things like that, because of this, uh, I mean, not holy roller, uh, Jesus freak. They developed the term Jesus freak because these hippies and beach bums and others are coming to Jesus Christ and starting churches and making disciples and evangelizing. Calvary Chapel started out of that. Denomination started that. Missions movement started out of that. Because a group of believers said, this is not the end of the world, uh, or maybe it is, God has shaken things up for a reason. So you all, this is why I believe that 2020 was a difficult year. But I believe it's another year that God is saying to us, the church, believers, point people to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our only hope. Okay, y'all, come on. I'm trying to preach here. <laughs> Jesus Christ is our only hope. God is shaking up our lives, our economy, the government, our country, the church to say, wake up. The shake-up is time to wake up. Jesus Christ is our only hope. We need to return to him. So don't think that what happened in 2020 is unusual. But notice this. Notice this is what happens in verse 8. Here's Asa's response, and here should be our response. Now, when Asa heard these words and the prophecy which Azariah, the son of Oded, the prophet spoke, he took courage. Underline that word Courage. Because in verse seven, he says, but you be strong and do not lose courage. That word, be strong, can be translated courage in verse seven. And in verse eight, it's translated as courage. It's the Hebrew word kazak. It's repeated over and over again in Chronicles. And the reason why I believe is this, because if you are going to follow God, if you're gonna have a radical focus on Jesus, you must have courage. You must have courage especially in our society, in our world today, and in that world back then, if you're gonna follow God faithfully, wholeheartedly, radically focus on Jesus, you must have courage. And so that word is repeated over and over and over again. The reason why the Israelites were taken into exiles, why? Because they lacked courage. But when they had the presence of God and the favor of God is because they walked in courage. So he says, 
Here in verse eight, he took courage. He took courage. And what did he do? And removed the abominable idols from all the land of Judah and Benjamin and from the cities which he had captured in the hill country of Ephraim. He then restored the altar of the Lord which was in front of the porch of the Lord. He does two things. First, he removes the idols. He removes the idols. And then what does he do? He restores temple worship again. It seems as if they had left temple worship and the sacrifice and now we're focusing on these idols and the high places. He says he removes the idols and he restores worship. And then verse nine, and he gathered all Judah and Benjamin, those from Ephraim and Manasseh, Simeon who resided with them, for many defected to him from Israel when they saw the Lord his God was with him. What happened because of this courage that he demonstrated, because he wanted to return to the Lord, now the presence of God was with Asa. And what happens, even people in the northern kingdom who defected are now coming back, saying we wanna serve the Lord as well. Verse 10, so they assembled at Jerusalem in the third month of the 15 year of Asa's reign. They sacrificed to the Lord on that day 700 oxen and 7,000 sheep. Jacob, I did the math on that. 7,000 oxen, uh, 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 7,000 sheep, that's roughly $5 million. All right, based on her head and all that stuff, I did all the calculations there. And, and 7,000 sheep from the spoils which they had brought. So here's the thing. When Asa was confronted with this warning, return to the Lord, have courage, be strong, don't lose courage. The tireless message is whatever it takes. He did whatever it takes for the people of God to come back to the Lord. He did whatever it takes. He says, it means removing all the idols, we'll remove those. If it means restoring temple worship, we'll do that. And even if it means a cost of $5 million worth of animals, we'll sacrifice that. Can I give you all some good news? We don't need to sacrifice animals anymore. Why? Thank you, y'all. Thank you. Jesus, yes. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Because of Jesus, we can return to the Lord. He says in verse 12, they entered into the covenant to seek the Lord of their fathers with all their heart and soul, and whoever would not seek the Lord, the God of Israel, was put to Death, whether small or great, man or woman. He says they even changed the laws. He says we need to return to the Lord so much so let's change the laws that if you are not wholeheartedly serving the Lord, faithful to him, worshiping idols, you will be put to death. Small or great. Whether you're the mayor, you're a wealthy businessman, or you're a pauper in the streets, he says you must die. That's the extreme measures he takes. He says whatever it takes, he says in verse 14, moreover they made an oath to the Lord with a loud voice, with shouting trumpets and with horns. That's what I really would love for this Sunday morning to be, an expressive way that we recommit ourselves to him through song and worship. Verse 15, all Judah rejoiced concerning the oath for they had sworn with all their heart and had sought him earnestly and he let them find him. If you remember from the earlier section, verse I think five or six, he says the Lord let him find him. When we return to the Lord wholeheartedly, God graciously allows us to find him. So the Lord gave them rest on every side. Verse 16, he also removed Makah, the mother of King Asa, the queen mother, from the position of queen mother because she had made an abominable image as an Asherah and Asa cut down her abominable image, crushed it and burned it at the brook of Kidron. I was gonna tell this message originally. Granny, take a back seat. Granny, take a seat was what I'm gonna call this message. So 
Here is the queen mother. So he's not Asa's mother. He's the queen mother. Just like we would call Queen Elizabeth the queen mother, even though she has now grandkids and great-grandkids. Makkah had set up idols, worshiping false gods. And even though there's a blood relationship, what happens? Asa says, Grandma, take a seat. We're here now to worship God faithfully. We're now returning to God. And even though I love you and I value you and I adore you, the worship of false gods will not be permitted under my rule, under my reign. Jesus said it this way in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verses 34 through 38. He has this call to discipleship. He says, if you're gonna be my disciple, if you're gonna follow after me, I have to be number one in your life. I have to take priority over your spouse, your kids, your mother, your father, sister, anybody and everybody. I must have preeminence. And he says, so much so that he says, I came not to unite and bring peace. He says, I actually came with a sword to divide. He says, I, I came to divide families. What do you mean, Jesus? I thought you were a uniter and all this stuff. He says, but this is what's gonna happen. I'm gonna divide people. There are gonna be families, and part of the family is gonna say, we are loyal to Jesus. We serve Jesus. And there's others who say, Jesus and another faith. Jesus and somebody else, or Jesus and ourselves. They're gonna worship idols. And the idols today aren't statues that we bow down to. The idols are things like comfort and success, money. We've made idols out of marriage and even family. We've made idols out of ministry and success. And if we bow down to those things, we have to be willing to say we have to part ways. I have to be allegiant and faithful to Jesus alone. And that's what happens here. When Asa is forced to choose between his grandmother, Makkah, and her false worship and being faithful to God, he says, I choose God. And my friends, that's what God is asking us to do today. If we're gonna return to him, and you say, I wanna return to the Lord and be faithful to him, it's not just singing louder on Sunday. It's not just greeting a few more friends here on Sunday and being here, going to community group. He says, whatever it takes. What is it that you need to do so that you can be absolutely loyal to Jesus from your heart? What needs to be cut out of your life? What friendships need to be cut off? Not saying you don't love the people anymore, but if they've got an influence on you and are steering your heart away from the Lord, what and who needs to be cut? He says this uh, in verse 15, all Judah rejoiced concerning the oath for they had sworn with all their heart, again, all their heart, and it sought him earnestly and he let them find him so the Lord gave him rest. Verse 16, I'm sorry, verse 17, we talked about Makkah already. But the high places were not removed from Israel. So again, Asa is king of the southern kingdom, not the northern kingdom of Israel. So here's the other thing, do what you can do. Control what you can control. You can only deal with what's going on in your life. You cannot deal with stuff in other people's life. You can't do whatever it takes for other people. But look at this. Nevertheless, in verse 17, Asa's heart was blameless all his days. You will never find this in scripture. You will never find this in scripture regarding a man or a woman, that they were sinless in their heart. But what you, we will find is blameless. What's the difference between blameless and sinless? This side of eternity, we will never be sinless. Never be sinless. Don't get it twisted, y'all. No matter how righteous you think you are, you will never be sinless this side of eternity. But blameless, yes. What does a blameless man, a blameless woman do? 
When they sin, they're quickly to confess it to God and confess it to those who have offended. They don't live a double life. They're not two-faced. So he says here, what he could control, he controlled. He couldn't control Israel, but he could control his own life. And when he messed up, when he was worshiping idols, he dealt with those things. And so he was blameless in his heart. And my friends, if you and I commit to being blameless in our hearts before God, there is no telling what God can do in and through this church. Y'all believe it? If we are blameless in our hearts before God, there is no telling what God is gonna do in and through this church, in your community groups, in your lives. There's no telling what he can do because we are now available to God. Our hearts are ready to be molded and used by God. Verse 18, he brought into the house of God the dedicated things of his father and his own dedicated things, silver, gold, and utensils. Again, there's that thing about no matter the cost. Even if it costs him his own money and resources for the worship of God, he says, I'm willing to do that. So here's point number two. Courageous obedience should be our response to God's prophetic word to return to him. Courageous obedience. He says, be strong and courageous. What happens? He says, Asa had courage. He had courage to tell his grandmother, Grandma, take a seat. He takes the idols and he burns them. He disposes of them. He's willing to give up his own resources. So here's a question that God is asking us today, you and I, is in our return to faithfulness to God, what is it that God says, are you willing to do whatever it takes? Are you willing to do whatever it takes to be faithful to me? What is it? James chapter four, verse eight. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's what's being taught right here. But then he says, cleanse your hearts and purify your hands, you sinners. What he's saying is, you draw near to God. You return to God faithfully. James 4, eight. God is in return to you. Amen, isn't that good news? But then he also says, don't just think it means singing a little louder on Sunday raising your hands, maybe listen to some worship songs on the way to work. He says, but also, are you willing to do whatever it takes in your heart and in your life, your hands, so that you can say, Lord, I don't want anything to get in the way of pure, unadulterated devotion to you. I don't want anything to cloud my focus in my eyes for me to radically focus on Jesus. Are you willing to do whatever it takes Um, even though I am uh, one of the chaplains for the Houston Rockets, I get asked regularly, you know, hey, do you like this player? Did you watch the game? Did you see this? Do you see this highlight? I rarely watch basketball. Um, I actually cheat. I'll give you what I do. Uh, before I go to the game, I'm going to do chapel for, I'm always sitting on the visitor side, I'll actually Google, so if I'm doing chapel for the Rockets and say Pacers, I'll Google Pacers roster, and I'll find the pictures of all the guys, and I'll try to memorize their names, and I'll say, hey, hey, whatever, whatever you, uh, just want to invite you to chapel, you know, about an hour, and he's like, okay, thanks. But one thing I did do this year um, was I did watch the NBA Finals. I try to watch the NBA Finals when it comes around, because uh, we don't have cable, so I watch it on broadcast TV. 
And um, just to be honest, I was cheering for the Phoenix Suns, another Western Conference team. Game six is over. Giannis is courtside. Isaiah Thomas interviews him. And, and, and here's Giannis holding the Larry O'Brien trophy and the MVP trophy. He's got his championship hat on. Isaiah Thomas asks him, he says, hey, Giannis, not many people know your journey. They know you're like two-time MVP. You've now won the finals. Tell us your story. And he says, not many people know this. He says, I've been in the league now eight years, but six months before the draft, before I entered the NBA, we did not know where our next meal was gonna come from. Can you imagine that kind of life change to sit there and think eight and a half years ago, we're sitting at the dinner table, literally praying probably, Lord, give us this day our daily bread, not knowing where our next meal was gonna come from. And now he has wealth beyond imagination, fame beyond imagination. And so he says, but I got to the NBA as an 18-year-old rookie, and I thought about my family. I thought about all the sacrifices my mom and dad made. These are his literal words. And I got the title for this message before this interview. And he says, I was willing to do whatever it takes to provide a better life for my family, provide a better life for my brothers. I was willing to do whatever it takes to even provide a better life for my kids. I'm willing to do whatever it takes. And he said this, I would spend six hours in the gym. That meant eight hours in the gym, 10 hours in the gym. I was willing to do whatever it takes because I had this goal in mind. And you all, if a basketball player is willing to do whatever it takes to provide a better life for his family, to provide an NBA championship for a city, whatever it takes, here's the thing. All those things fade you know what I was doing the research on 1968 and 2020? I had to Google who won the NBA championship in 2020, last year. I forgot, and I'm a chaplain for the Rockets. But that's how quickly human glory and accomplishment fades. And Giannis is willing to do whatever it takes for something that fades. And my question to you all, is are you willing to do whatever it takes to return wholeheartedly to God, to accomplish the mission of God, which will endure forever? One day we'll be in glory, looking back, remembering all the things that God did in and through us. We won't be talking about NBA championships and MVPs. And Yana says, I'm willing to do whatever it takes. And Asa says, and God says to us, are you willing to do whatever it takes? So what happens? Look at verse seven again. But you, Bayou City Fellowship member, but you, Josh Schmidt, you be strong and do not lose courage. You, Caleb Hawkins, you be strong and do not lose courage. Why? For there is reward for your work. You do whatever it takes, there's a reward for your work. Look at verse 15 at the very end. So the Lord gave them rest on every side. 
when they were willing to do whatever it takes to get back and return to the Lord, what did God give them? Rest, reward. Look at verse 19. And there was no more war until the 35th year of Asa's reign. This was given to Asa in the 15th year of his reign. So for 20 years, they enjoyed peace because they had returned to the Lord wholeheartedly and were willing to do whatever it takes to come back to him. There's a reward, rest, and peace. If you want to read tomorrow morning, if you look at chapter 16 of this, 2 Chronicles 16, what happens? Success, peace. Asa's heart departs from the Lord, and in the 36th year, there's war again. There's calamity again. There's trouble again. So my friends, return to the Lord, whatever it takes. And when he gives you peace and rest, don't rest in that. Continue to pursue the Lord. Here's point number three. Peace and rest are the reward for returning to the Lord with courageous obedience. When you have those hard conversations, when you make those tough calls, when you're willing to make those sacrifices, he says, because you return to the Lord and want to do things his way, he says the reward is peace and rest. So whether you're a tired mom, a tired employee, a frustrated husband, a discouraged believer in Jesus Christ, an angry, lonely, discouraged, single man or woman, if you're there today, he says if you return to the Lord and say whatever it takes, Lord, to you and your way, the reward is peace and rest. You'll be like Giannis in all the pictures after the, the championship. He's always seen holding two trophies, the Larry O'Brien trophy and the MVP trophy. Those are his rewards because he was willing to do whatever it takes. And the reward for us as believers, as children of God, is peace and rest. Life as God designed it to be lived and a rest, not just good night's sleep, not just a vacation in your name, your favorite vacation destination, not just physical rest, but a soul rest that can only come from God. Here's the big idea for today. When we return to him, we receive his peace and rest. When we return to him, we receive his peace and rest. So no matter what state of life you're in today, if you're troubled, disturbance and distress, he says, return to him and do whatever it takes to return to him. And the reward is God's peace and rest. And that's the message of Jeremiah 29, 13. Jeremiah 29, 11, the verse that we all have on t-shirts, on coffee mugs. The hope and plans that God has for you is not that fat crib, that nice mansion house and the dream house and the cars and the clothes and the money and the 401ks. If you look at that text, in Jeremiah 29, 13, what is the dream, what is the hope he has, what are the plans that he has for you? That you will return to him wholeheartedly. And then returning to him, you will find him. Those are the, those are the plans that God has for us if we depart it from him. Um, one thing we're gonna start doing is this. And, and y'all, sorry, so I'm, I'm so like fired up today. It's, it's been, this, this sermon was for me. This, this message for me, I, I've had disturbances and distresses all this week, and I just, I've cried out to the Lord, Lord, I, I, need, I need you. And so I was fasting this week, saying, Lord, I, I need Jesus more than I need food. I, I'm gonna willing to do whatever it takes. 
uh, just to let y'all know, an elder of a church I used to pastor committed suicide uh, last Sunday. And I came home on my lunch break on Tuesday and I, I just ate my lunch very quickly. My wife came down from working upstairs and she said, hey, I need to let you know, I just got a call that this former elder uh, committed suicide. He was in the uh, police detective homicide. He's probably seen some very messy, messy things. He leaves behind a wife and three young kids. And I'm like, Lord, I can't take it anymore. Like this, this world is just full of trouble, full of pain. I need peace and I need rest. So y'all, y'all are just eavesdropping on my sermon today. It was really just for me, all right? Um, and I had a great reminder that a week ago on Sunday, um, we, we, we are adding new staff, and we're gonna now begin to share up front about our new staff that we're adding because we want you to know them. We want you to get to know them. So if you have a question about mobilization, hey, I need to see Tanner and Lauren. If I have a question about admin or my giving or whatever, I need to go see Rachel. We're gonna have them introduce them. But last Sunday, my wife and I took Tanner and Lauren Garfat out uh, for lunch. Uh, they're our new staff members. And they have a little girl named Eden, cute little girl, baby girl. And so you all have been there. Um, we're sitting down at the restaurant for lunch. Eden is there in her little baby car seat. She's fussy. It's the afternoon. She's tired. It's nap time. It's feeding time. But mom and dad are trying to have a conversation with Icky and Tara. And so they try everything to give little Eden, and I love that name, Eden, some peace and rest. So what do they do? What does every parent do? to give a child peace, it's right there in the name. Pacifier, a peace giver. To pacify means to give peace. They give her the pacifier, but the pacifier does not give her peace. She quickly spits it out and she's fussing again. She said, I know what you're trying to do. This ain't feeding time. Don't play me, right? She begins to cry and fuss again. They get a blanket and they kind of swallow her and put her in this blanket, really tight, nice and comfortable, this warm blanket. But eventually she's shaking and moving out because even that blanket won't give her that peace and rest that she wants. Something that we didn't have when we were young parents, she pulled out this white noise machine, a little speaker, she pushed play and all of a sudden the sound of gentle ocean waves begins to play. But even that would not give her any peace and rest. She's continued to fuss. She's squirming. And all of a sudden, Tanner gets up and he says, excuse me. Lauren, his wife, hands him something and my wife said, it looked like pantyhose. He wraps the pantyhose around his chest and around his body. Then he grabs little Eden and places her in this. It's a wrap. And next thing you know, <laughs> he places a wrap over her head right next to his heart. And within seconds, she's asleep. No more crying, no more fussing, no more squirming. To the point now, we're having adult conversation and I forget that there's a little three-month-old, four-month-old baby nestled on Tanner's chest. She's so quiet and so peaceful. And God began to speak to me at that moment and saying, you know what? You and I, we want peace and rest. We try to find peace and rest in our toys, in our accomplishments, in our friends, in our success, 
in watching some TV, in binge watching. We try to find some peace and rest in things. But what God is saying is, return to me. Come to me. Be close to my heart. Be close to me. And in intimacy with me and my presence, just like little Eden with her father, when we're close to the father and his heart, what God gives us is the peace and rest that we've been longing for. And so I told Tanner and Lauren, I said, y'all gonna be in a sermon. This is gonna be in a sermon, y'all. Little I know that it would be today. So if you're there today, you're trying to bring peace with that pacifier, those toys and trinkets, the new clothes, the shopping spree, the vacation, trying to find comfort and wrap yourself in friends or other things. God says, you want peace and rest that's gonna last? You want peace and rest that's gonna endure through hard times and people ending their lives, through the trials and tribulations of life? You want peace and rest in 1968 or 2020? Draw near to me, draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. And you will find peace and rest. Let's pray. God, I do pray for this family that have just lost their husband and father. God, would you comfort them as only you can with peace and rest. God, whoever is here today, they're experiencing those disturbances and distresses. God, would they return to you? They would hear the call to return to you. Not in a positional way. Positionally, we are children of God. Positionally, we are sons and daughters, born again, adopted in the family, but relationally. And God, I pray that we would be willing to do whatever it takes to return to you, to fast, to pray an extended period of time in prayer, in Bible study, to perhaps cut off that ungodly relationship, that relationship that does not honor you. God, perhaps it's to give like we've never given before because we know your word says where our treasure is, where we put our money, our heart is gonna follow. So God, if we want you to have more of our hearts, our income and our wealth and our resources also have to be directed to you as well. God, if it means turning off talk radio on the way to work and listening to sermons or to the audible Bible, audio Bible, or worshiping in the car with praise and worship. And God, even if at the stoplight we look like a fool because we're singing at the top of our lungs, worshiping you. Master, we're willing to do whatever it takes to return to you. And God, thank you that as we return to you, you bless us with peace and rest, shalom, wholeness, and wellness in the midst of a troubled and broken world. And rest, not just a good night's sleep, but soul rest. 
God, thank you for blessing us with that. God, again, I do pray for anyone here today that has yet to put their faith in Christ. They don't know you relationally and they don't have position with you. They're not a child of God. Today would be the day they place their faith in Jesus Christ alone so that they can be forgiven for all their sins, past, present, and future, and have an eternal relationship with you to be adopted into your family. God, today would be the day they place their faith in Christ alone. God, we trust you to be about your work of saving and delivering. God, we commit ourselves to you. We commit our families to you. We commit our businesses to you. We commit our time, our talents, our treasures, and even our bodies, our temples to you, God. You're worthy. You alone are worthy. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, 